0: This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host Zen Rung Yap and today my guest is Nihir Ved. He is a PhD candidate in natural language processing at Imperial College London and he's the CEO of Feather AI. He embodies someone that is pursuing innovation in technology and entrepreneurship and he's altogether a great guy that I love chatting to. Welcome to the podcast Nihir
1: thanks jen for the fantastic intro it's um an honor to be here and yeah i'm excited to see what comes from this
0: yeah so i met here at one of the uh, w- w- at one of the brunches in london which you call the rich brunches um that was started by jack chong and um uh, i haven't been since i've been back to university but yeah how, how have you been to the ones that have uh, since i last saw you how, have the brunches influenced
1: the way you think at all yeah i have i've been to a couple um i know I think uh, I'm I'm a later comer to this brunch group. I think you've been you've been there for a while. There's it's it's it was really my first experience in a network of entrepreneurs and other founders. Um, and I honestly just love the mentality that these guys have. They're extremely friendly. They're outgoing. They want to they want to make connections and they want to make friends. Um, and they're always there to help you be better. Um, so while I wouldn't say anything directly for 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 Feather has come out. Because of the because of the brunch groups, um, these connections are definitely incredibly valuable. Um, and now I know a lot more people than I would have known beforehand, and I have more friends than I had beforehand as well.
0: Yeah. It's just crazy how optimistic a lot of these a lot of people are. And same same with you. Uh, first by you, just like beaming with like your vision about everything with feather. So yeah, it's um it's quite cool. You even hosted one of them, which was which was really very very fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My, my housemate and I, we, um, we, so we moved to, we got a place together pretty recently. Well, I say recently, it was in August or September now. And one of our, one of our goals was to, you know, make it a hacker house and to, to have other, uh, you know, founders, people who are optimistic, like you say, like-minded and ambitious to, to come and actually, um, you know, partake in the love of hacking, I guess, um, growing things and, um, you know, hustling to make life better for yourself um unfortunately he hasn't uh, been home too much so we haven't been able to do more more sessions um but we would really love to you know and it, it was great to be given that kind of opportunity and to have a network which was you know willing to to break the norms of what they were used to, to to experience something new
0: yeah and um the pretty cool thing is that you have quite a lot of people that are also in like deep tech as well right like like you especially i remember seeing trust like um like trans the transformers model on your on your whiteboard <laughs> you had just like written written down after,
1: after a late night or something like that and your mute- the people one of my housemates he's a phd as well the other one is um he's doing a master's right now um but he's obviously interested in ai so you know we, we like to share knowledge from from time to time which is uh definitely valued because i i think one thing from research is Uh, It's very segmented. There isn't a lot of cross-disciplinary work which goes on. um, And I do think there's lots and lots of room for innovation should people from different disciplines actually get the chance to interact. Um, But that hasn't been my experience with research.
0: Yeah, Um, that's great. So when when I was researching questions for the session, I saw that your LinkedIn profile is you in front of the Google office. And I visited there. I visited the office over the summer because I am just quite curious about or it's like there, right? So I thought it was quite subtle. Have any recruiters recognized that
1: yet? Uh, recruiters haven't, but actually it's also on the way to where we normally host the brunches. Uh, uh. So kind of, yeah, you can yeah. you can you can walk down those those uh, that little plaza, I guess, that they have out in front. No, recruiters haven't noticed it. Um, but I guess then again I haven't been looking for 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 jobs um, since i started my phd to be honest mm-hmm. that photo was actually taken you're, you're right it was a subtle call out to google um or deep mind specifically um oh, yeah. yeah that i was taken before i started my phd and i was like you know what i want i want to work at DeepMind in five years time because they only accept phd candidates i think that's changing now or you know post uh, post phd students um and yeah honestly i'm surprised that you noticed that uh and i think my my goals have changed a little bit since i've taken that picture but uh you know the the idea was like oh hey in five years this is where i this is where i want to be
0: hmm. yeah so uh, on the note about your phd uh, so it's lack it's a natural language processing and specifically visual language right is that right so could you describe and explain a little bit about what's that what's that about
1: yeah, sure. Um, so I think most people here would probably know the the essence of what NLP or natural language processing is. It's hey, let's try and get a computer to understand language um, primarily through through text as opposed to speech. Speech or signal processing is a is a different field in itself. What I study is um, something called multimodal AI, and it sounds complicated, but basically it's just. Instead of having one modality as input, i.e., instead of just having text as input, you also have something else as input as well. So, um, what I study is visual and visual and textual AI. Um, so we have, it, you know, the the fusion between computer vision and NLP, where you have tasks which require images as well as as actual language. So, um, what I actually work on is this field called visual question generation, which is quite similar to image captioning or visual question answering. Um, basically you have an image and you want to do something which is related to text with this image so in the VQA sense it would be like um, hey here's here's a picture of people sitting around the table and you ask the algorithm uh, with this picture uh, how many people are sitting around the table and then the algorithm will look at the picture look at the question and then give you the answer to to the um, uh, to the question that you asked based on the contents of the image
0: oh, I see um, are you in your second year is that but,
1: uh, uh I have just started my third year, but you know, with COVID happening last year, yeah. it feels like, uh, last year was almost a, a half a write-off, if, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I see. So, um, because I, I remember we were talking about, uh, what you're working on in PhD and, uh, you, and that, that's, that sort of, um, very, 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 uh, naturally leans into how feather works, right? Because you're, you're thinking about vision language all the time and then you're also applying that to feather and, um, yeah, so could you tell could you tell us a bit about how Feather AI works and what your vision is for it, basically?
1: Yeah, feather feather isn't directly or feather was inspired by me building an algorithm for my PhD and wanting to share it with other people. Um, so the the algo that I built was visual question generation, which is here's an image. Can you come up with a question for this image? So if I if I gave you that picture of people sitting around the table, the algorithm would ask hey, how many people are sitting around the table instead of the human giving it to to the algorithm. Um, Now, I wanted a way to share this model with people. I think, uh, especially for education purposes, it has um, a good good use case. So for example, think about a language learner, um, somebody who's trying to learn English, for example. Um, Immersion is a big part of actually learning a language, like feeling engrossed in that world and communicating to other people uh, in, in the language that you're trying to learn. Um, and this is where AI could actually help with this is, hey, look, um, here's, here's something that I don't know enough about. Maybe, I don't know, it's a picture of a dog in a park, you know? Um, so I can take a picture with my phone and uh, through my language learning app, this model will run. And then it can ask me questions on this particular concept, which I am interested in. And it's in my own world. It's not a generic picture of a dog that's been taken at the internet. It's one that I've seen in a park that I walk through regularly. Um, and obviously, while I, I, I think like, industry adoption is, is far away from, from using this, this kind of model. I, I think like uh, under people understanding where AI actually is, is, um, is it's quite difficult. Um, and, and what I say by this is like, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in, in like the public image of and in, uh, in public image of AI, like a lot of people point to Sophia and think that this is, this is AI when in reality <laughs> thinking like the actual conversation that they have is, is um, fully based on AI where, where in reality AI is, it's getting there, but it's uh, really not close to, to that level of fluid, seamless conversation, like human to human, as, as we're having right now. Um, but feather was a way to basically allow researchers to uh, very quickly share their models with um, with other people, including other researchers. Um, but the 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 more we worked on it, the 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 broader the vision kind of expanded. So. Uh, what what we what we like to phrase it as is a marketplace for AI models so basically if, if somebody has created a model and they want to share it with other people they can upload it to two feather and they can they can share it um, now obviously it being a business um, there's there's a couple of ways that you can monetize it existing existing products out there they monetize the actual creators and the suppliers and I think this is a, a, a big deterrent to to some people um, like hey look I created this i put in hard work now i have to pay to um uh, to share this with other people um and you know some people might consider it a waste of time whereas um what we thought is like surely somebody who's created something like this you know chances are it might provide value to actual to other people um and why why shouldn't i make some money from from me giving value to other people that's exactly the point of money you know um so yeah we we kind of flipped this on his head and we said hey how about anybody who uses this model um actually pays to use this model and the the actual model creator the person who uploads it they get some money every time somebody um somebody uses the the model that they upload see
0: and um so uh what i remember is um you i mean you I, i remember you showing me uh how you just like took a picture and then like Loaded it into one of the models, mm-hmm. and then just it just run, it just ran right, and yeah. it showed everything like right there, a picture from where we were. So that was mm-hmm. pretty cool. Uh, but it, it runs in like a subscription system, is that right? Or how does it work? No, no,
1: not at all. It's um, it's actually well, um, we've added in subscription, but fundamentally, what we what we want to run things off is uh, like a credit based system. So like a pay as you go model. I yeah. think like um, really a lot of businesses are just. Uh, thinking SAS, 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 monthly subscriptions <laughs> are the way to go. Um, and yeah, don't get me wrong, for some things they they definitely make sense. Um, but I think for, you know, a lot of people are bored of, of, of paying for subscriptions which they use once or twice a month. Um, and I guess from a business perspective, that's a good thing. Um, but like, if you... But I think purely the SaaS business model doesn't actually make too much sense when thinking about the way that we actually want to monetize or provide incentives for the, for the creator. So instead, what we do is we run off a credit-based system. So the, the idea is, um, in, in the longer term, that each each model creator can specify how many credits they think, um, they think their model is worth for, for executing. And just yeah. to give you an idea, one credit is about 40 cents and you can have fractional credits as well. So you can have half a credit or you can have two and half credits, for example. Um, and basically the consumer, so the, per- the person who's using the model, they will buy credits through Feather. Um, so let's say they buy 10 credits and this gives them potentially 10 executions if each, if each model costs one, one credit to execute. And then part of the the credit cost, um, whenever they execute a model, um, will go to, to go to the actual model creator. Now, with with um, in preparation for our launch, we've, we've actually we have actually added in a subscription plan. Um, but all the subscription does is it gives you access to or um, the different as you go up the the pricing plans gives you access to more credits and also allows you to buy credits at a cheaper rate. So um, with the default plan, I think we put. Uh, uh 10 credits for four dollars or each credit is 40 cents but with the like most expensive plan you can cut that credit cost by 50 percent so if you if you 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 know if you find yourself executing a lot of models then obviously um the the subscription plan becomes a bit more cost effective
0: so how many credits is the model you built that um you initially built in your phd project
1: um yeah that's a good question i hadn't actually thought about that what we've what we've been doing more recently is, is because it's a marketplace, um, and you know this is mine and Paul, my my CTO's first time actually building a startup, growing a startup. Um, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot of things we did wrong, but there's a lot of things that we learned and things that we we realized. Hey, look, if this is what we want our vision to be, then we need a different execution strategy than uh, launching the product sending DMs to people about it and hoping that it would pay off. Like we need some, like a method, a methodological growth engine to to actually um, build traction to to our platform. So um, what we've done is um, we've kind of not, we haven't put the marketplace on hold, but we've said, hey, look, to grow a marketplace, what we, or this is what we believe, what we need to do is we need to find a a, a vertical which has demand in it. So something that people are actually willing to pay for, to use, to, to execute a model and um we've decided on marketing tech so this will be like ai generated copy so if you want to create a facebook ad if you want to create a blog post if you want to create a whole landing page um then our 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 product supports that um with this um so so we we're the, the plan is that we're going to seed our um seed our marketplace with with models that we create ourselves and validate that hey look there is demand in this particular vertical then the idea is to find suppliers who have access to tools which do allow them to create uh, AI-generated copy. And OpenAI have, um, I think just last week, they, they took GPT-3 out of private beta. And now anybody can basically use it, uh, provided that they follow the usage um, guidelines on there. So um, this is, it's a great time to, to, to find suppliers who do have access to GPT and are wanting to, to make some money off it. Mm -hmm. um so the idea is is that hey once we've validated that there's demand once we have some people on our platform then we can go and find suppliers who can also serve these uh these customers and then once this vertical has been validated and there's uh hints and uh, elements of traction there we can move on to a different vertical and then slowly expand uh the offerings and the types of models that we that we have on our platform
0: that's amazing um i i see my friend um who's working on a, uh, working on a marketing agency called, uh, scale with sales. And he's getting like 25, 25 times, 30 times like ROAS. I think it's like return on ad spend, right. Which is absolutely crazy.
1: That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like if you, if you, if you integrate, um, what's it called? ML, NLP like models with maximizing Mm -hmm. (laughs) the ROAS, right. You can really. Uh, create a lot of value for people that way um just the one, the one thing that i've been thinking uh, that i've been that stands out to me is uh, how the credit system is validated if only the person who uploaded the, the model can see what the model is right because that that's how it works right so that so you protect uh, the people with the models
1: yeah so you can't or a consumer can't see the code that a model creator has has uploaded okay.
0: Is is the model creator the only person who can see the code? Uh,
1: so I mean, technically speaking, we we have access to it because the oh, the code okay. gets uploaded to our to our platform. But yeah. we, um, so this is this is a problem that we'll need to discuss in a bit more depth in the sure. in the future. Which is like, um, obviously we want to have a good reputation, and uh, you yeah. know, we like we like, we kind of like to make the comparison to the Apple App Store versus the Android App Store when they were in the you know formative stages. Um, the Apple app store obviously had incredibly high quality apps because everything was vetted by, um, uh, by the, uh, I don't know who you'd call it by the, by people from, from Apple before, before they got onto the app store, uh, QA, uh, QA experts and whatever. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Google one, they're like, nah, whatever, anything can, anything can go on it. Um, and I think we, we want to be a bit more like the, take the Apple strategy on this, which is like. Uh, if you want to make money off of this, then we need to validate that. Hey, look, your your code is working fine, and that um, you know this actually does bring value to two people. Um, I mean, this is only one one thing that we can do to prevent this kind of like validation of credits, as you put it. The other thing is having a review system, um, and I think this is this is quite powerful as well. We've seen this with Etsy, Amazon, eBay. That uh, you know, having notions of, of uh, user profiles and reviews for from from you know the sellers of a product to having uh, you know star ratings for an individual product itself, uh, you know that that's quite a powerful thing, and this can go a long way. And also, um, you know, converting a uh, converting a customer, but also customers putting trust in the models that um, models that have been deployed through Feather.
0: Yeah, that's great. It sounds like um, you've figured out a whole plan to do it. Um, so I guess I just have, uh, what's it called? Well, have two more questions about Feather, but we'll go one by one. Uh, what gave you the inspiration for the name Feather?
1: Yeah, this is, a, this is a good question. So I think a lot of people put weightings on names uh, and I think, don't get me wrong, a name is important. Um, it does subtly convey some elements about the brand, but at the end of, generally speaking, like. The brand gives meaning to the name. So, like Apple by itself, before it was called App, like before it had the brand, it didn't really mean anything. When uh, when somebody who didn't know what Apple was heard Apple as a company, but now that 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 name carries some weight behind it. I was gonna say, um, yeah, the, the thing I hate about names are the when when people in it, when it's a description of what the product is um, like Netlify, for example, great product, don't get me wrong, but I think it's a terrible name to, to just say, let's E5, something like that. Um, you know, and it's like, every time I type NET into my browser, uh, NETL, like what's the first thing that comes to my mind? It's not Netlify, it's, it's Netflix, you know? Um, and now Netflix is a good name, um, because it, it, it it has this way of like subtly encapsulating what the product actually does within the name, but it doesn't, it's not obvious. It's not like, you know, Facebook isn't called socialmediasite.com and uh, Twitter isn't called microblogging.com, you know? Um, uh, Although there was blogger.com, but yeah, like I I don't think those are, those are good ways of of coming up with a name. Um, on, On the flip side, you have something like Stripe, right? Now Stripe literally went down a whole list of, 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 nouns until they found one which they thought was they found one which was like stripe.com or like noun.com um and they thought it was somewhat okay but um i don't think they were particularly happy with the like they weren't like overly excited by the name but they're like hey look this is a noun and it's a noun.com uh domain so let's just let's just run with it and now that that name has has weight behind it when you when you hear what stripe actually means we thought we'd go for some kind of uh subtle middle ground i guess so feather um it's kind of it's also a noun um but i think like the the elements that it conveys it's like it's lightweight it's simple it's elegant um and these are uh, these are all things that we actually do want to embody in in our um in our products we don't want it to be heavy we don't want it to be mean we want it to be like easily accessible um and just you know not change your workflow and this was one of the like driving principles of of Feather is you have all these other tools in in the ML deployment space like um, MLflow, Kubeflow um, uh, even, even SageMaker for example but these all require somebody to change how they build their ML models to actually use, use these tools. Um, We didn't want to do that. We we wanted to be completely agnostic. We we have a problem that we're trying to solve. We don't want to tie you into some other like wider ecosystem. It's just like, Hey, you've, you've built your model. You've built it however you want. You've built it on Colab. You've built it on VS code. Doesn't, doesn't matter. Here's Feather. You can just use it completely agnostic of how you built your model. um, And you can still uh, you know deploy it and share it with other people and we think there's um you know there's value in just being that like cherry on top instead of being the whole cake if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah exactly um there's there's a lot in the ml deployment sort of space right now right um mm-hmm. and uh, I, th- I thought i was literally thinking feather was because it was lightweight <laughs> and it was yeah. it was something that was, like <laughs> i could easily like be part of um, like the rest of the, the wing, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really nice way to, to phrase it actually. I <laughs> hadn't thought of that, but um, yeah, the lightweight for sure.
0: Yeah, so uh, has your, just I know you're, you were a software engineer for a bit before you started your PhD. So was, what had your experience working in industry motivated any of your decisions on choosing your research pathway or starting further?
1: Uh, not choosing my research pathway, I, okay. I don't think it was directly related, but that I, I would say it's probably one of the most valuable years in my life that I actually had being in industry compared to um, the typical approach of, of people who just stay in academia and go from undergrad to masters to PhD. I think industry has a huge amount to offer beyond like the the monetary incentives. I think like. Um, you truly understand what it's like to work on a team in in, in industry. You learn a lot about coding, which you uh, which you don't in in undergrad or your master's degree. Um, and a lot of that comes from the fact that you have people who review your code, you read other people's code on a, on a project that you're all working for together. You understand like how projects are actually maintained. Like we had some group projects at, at my my university, but it was very much like here's one person keeping it in their head. Um, not writing it down because the project is is um, a relative, a relatively small scale. But even with two people um, on on feather, um, me and Paul would needed to find a way to to you know manage a whole project. And I think industry has a lot to do with um, uh, uh, with with teaching people how to uh, you know how a project needs to be executed to make sure people are, are staying in sync. Because even with two people, it's a, it's 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 quite different than just one person doing it by themselves. And I also think um, so I've worked as a front-end dev. Um, and I also I, I think that this was one of the most valuable skills that I've had as um in terms of actual software. I think it's incredibly underrated and not a lot of universities put enough emphasis on front-end dev, um, uh, which is a which is a shame, I think, because like uh it's the way that you can showcase. A project that you do right it's like anything that you want to build like if you need to build an interface for it it's going to involve some front end um and my industry experience was purely on front end dev um and having that experience was was incredibly useful because yeah i'm 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 the one who builds all the uis and the the, the interfaces for, for feather um so understanding that was or understanding how that works and understanding the best practices around that is is um uh has been valuable in 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 the process of building feather
0: I think exactly what you said about the experience in the front end. It's just, it just helps so much, right? Like last week I did a micro internship, just like a five-day internship at, um, through the career service that Oxford has. And mm-hmm. it, it taught me it it taught me so much about uh, how to set up the code base in a way that can everyone everyone can understand it. And it's systematic, right? Yeah. Uh, and pre- previously, I I thought that, uh, I mean, I'd done a little bit of React before working on hackathon projects, but I, I I thought most of it was just all in one 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 folder with like just a bunch of HTML files and each one links to each other. But actually, you need um, you need the you need the JS files, you need the uh, you need the roots, right? If you're using Flask or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I've, know, I've
1: worked at a startup uh, last year, and um, we actually built a whole streaming software, like kind of like Zoom, but um, you know, this was before uh, this was as COVID was coming in. Um, so Zoom hadn't had the breakout rooms yet. Um, we we built that feature into our our streaming tech. So this is like um, kind of like Google Meets um, with with breakout rooms, specifically focused on on teaching um, and, and classrooms um and i remember these guys that uh the guys who built this that not had any industry experience they were like um one of them was like freshly graduated the other was um uh he dropped out of university but like in in the good sense of dropout like you know mark zuckerberg or bill gates dropout not like um uh not like bad dropout because of poor grades um and I, I looked at their code base like yo what is what is going on here like <laughs> you literally have there's no typescript involved typescript is a must guys if you're if you're building um, a, a production project uh, there's no typescript involved literally everything is in one folder yeah uh, everything has been hacked together there's no segmentation of components Um, like there's no there's no tree structure there's no theme provider um, and it's like uh, you know it, it's a lot of like organization around how you uh, how you organize your code base and in the wider sense, organize your project as well. Um, that, that really helps people, like when you're working in teams, this is extremely important. You're not going to be the only one who's working on your code. Um, and even if you are, like if you come back to a code that you haven't touched in like two or three weeks, you're going to struggle to, to remember like what exactly this, this piece of code is doing. So uh, having this kind of like structure around, around coding and um, being that mentality of, hey, look, if I come back and read this code, will I be able to understand it? If it's no, then somebody else definitely is not going to be able to understand it. So um, yeah, you know, really embodying that philosophy when you actually start writing, um, start writing out projects. Um, Yeah, one, one other thing I wanted to add to that was like, Uh, I see a lot of these like low code and no code tools and I've I've used some of them, for example, Webflow. I think Webflow is, is honestly fantastic. It's such a, such a good product. Um, But I think fundamentally none of them give you like the the kind of freedom that um, actually coding things from, from scratch actually gives you, I'm not tinkered with bubble, but I've heard good things about it. Um, But, but yeah, there's a lot of like smaller and and subtle things that you might want to add. Um, So for example, like, uh what it works this way on mobile but it works a different way on desktop so you, you kind of give people different experiences and you can't always control that um you know some of these low code and no code tools aren't aren't as flexible as coding things up for for yourself um and I think this is where a, a lot of front-end knowledge really really can help because I've spoken to other founders um through the rich brunch and you know they've shown me their landing pages and their websites they look good don't get me wrong um, but like when it comes to like oh I think this would be better if you did it like this they'll be like oh I I can't actually do that because I built the site on WordPress or I built the site on on Webflow um, and I have to strictly abide by by you know what they've actually um, uh, you know the the template that they've given me I can't really go outside of that and I think like um, yeah this is this is where obviously having front end skill could be very useful to them.
0: What would you say? Uh, I mean, what advice could you give people on improving their front end? just practice or is there something specific yeah i think i
1: think practice is is, um obviously the the key to anything um and i think like a lot of these founders they're they're not they're not technical but i i do feel like front end is um it's a good introduction into programming and it doesn't start off as being overly technical it just starts off as as html which is just markup it's like hey you want to make this bold then you can make it bold by simply putting it in like b tags if you know what i mean Um, it's only when you need that more complex, uh, interactive elements, um, with, with JavaScript, for example, that, um, that, you know, more technical knowledge comes into play, but I think it's like a very natural learning curve to, to do that. And, you know, I would say it's important. The reason I say it's important is because, um, it's because it's a landing page, right? This is the first thing that your customer sees when they, when they, um, when they come and visit, when they find out who you are and first impressions genuinely matter. You can't, you know... You know, this is why like um, conversion rate optimization is such a big thing and why like people put emphasis on making good landing pages, why designers get paid a lot of money for um, for, for for their job. You know, they they do the research and they understand like, hey, look, uh, things need to be here. This needs to be here. And with a with a pre-built template, you can't get that customizability. You can't increase your conversion rate, uh, part changing colors and changing some copy, but you can't change the experience that a user actually has. Um, and I think that's that's incredibly detrimental if you're looking to, to um, actually grow your business. Um, and uh, anything which is like somewhat related to SaaS, you know, like um, at some point, like if you, don't have, if you don't have funding and you don't have the budget to hire somebody else, I know a lot of people are like first-time founders, um, um, then I, I think it's like a valuable skill to have where you can basically build most things yourself if you just know front end um and I, I think like yeah by doing that you can really quickly validate proof of concepts and um you know raise or get customers or or do whatever you need to with 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 this skill so um yeah i'd say don't sleep on front end i think it's a, an incredibly it's not undervalued but i think more people need to value it than they than they do
0: i think it's i think it's great that uh, i think the advice you gave us on like um what you need to know uh, and how how it helps founders is really really good because um well, it's, it's sort of, you sort of get to the most important part, right, which is the conversion rate. And it allows it allows you to be much more uh objective with what with with the problem you're trying to solve. So yeah, I think that's fantastic. Um did you have so I, I've I'm wondering about what what got you into the PhD project that you're on. So I thought you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, And I have to say it was was like a rediscovery of like a long lost dream or calling. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you call it, but uh, a long lost passion. Uh, I remember like when I was super young, just lying in bed and and like before I go to sleep, my thoughts like, wouldn't it be cool to have a decision making machine? Like I could just tell it a problem and it could tell me like the ideal thing to do um and I was like oh surely that would like I was like you know like seven years old or something I was like oh surely it surely wouldn't be that hard to build <laughs> out and, and whatever else um and I kind of forgot about it until like my experience with um going to university um and I originally wanted to do maths but um I didn't get into the into the course so I ended up doing like uh computer science um finished degree took an AI module and I was like oh this is cool I wonder where like know what we learned in that ai module was like um the basics like a star search and like um i I guess it was more search algorithms like uh binary search depth uh breadth breadth first depth first whatever it wasn't like neural networks or anything anything of the cool stuff it's like oh it's kind of interesting um and i did my dissertation and i was like um yeah let's try and throw a neural network here see what happens um ended up i i really enjoyed like learning learning about the field didn't really understand much at that point in time but like i still Mm -hmm. uh, i still enjoyed it and i still uh, appreciated the potential that these things had um, and then I did my master's in in data science inspired by this dissertation that I did um, and yeah I, I I really pushed the boundaries on this um, you know uh, in in terms of personally what I what I could do um, learned a huge amount about AI and I was like oh crap maybe this decision mach- making machine could actually be a reality um, and yeah despite me like not you know really focusing on on, on that kind of stuff um, you know, I think just AI has been something that I've wanted to do for for a very long time. I'm incredibly excited about, like, the prospects of what it can what it can offer people, how much it can help people as well. Um, and uh, uh, I forgot this third point that I wanted to make. Uh, but yeah, let's just leave it at those two. Like, uh, just incredibly excited about, like, yeah, what it can do for people, how it can help people. And I've, I, I've always known that, like, language is something, which um, is, like, a barrier with how people can actually interact with ai like ideally you'd want to just be able to talk to it in english you know like
0: yeah.
1: um you know you don't want to learn languages and vector space and <laughs> send in like random numbers to, yeah. to talk to an ai right so this fusion of uh, not this fusion but this field of like how can we actually get ai to understand what we're trying to say that's what excites me um and this is why i think i have a calling to like uh, nlp basically like um yeah, as I said, like trying to get computers to understand our intentions and what we mean when we say certain words and the, the way the meanings of things change if we phrase things or even say things slightly differently.
0: Yeah, I always found uh, working on neural networks and working on uh, like regression and computer vision, none of it really felt like actual AI, right? It mostly felt like nonlinear like non- non-linear just like mapping stuff and just uh, finding a non-linear curve to fit some sort of data. But NLP was the, NLP is the one that it, it sort of, because it works with how you communicate, right? So it mm-hmm. feels much more like AI and uh, it's like it's, it feels like NLP is, would be a route towards artificial general intelligence, what, what what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it's, I mean, like the point of AGI is is for it to understand things, right? And mm-hmm. it can't understand things if it doesn't understand language. Um, yeah. so yeah, I think NLP is definitely um, probably more key to AGI than than computer vision actually is. Um, but saying that, like some for something to be truly AGI, then I guess it does need to understand all the different kinds of modalities. It needs to understand vision. Um, it needs to understand uh, Understand language as well. Um, I was gonna say something. What was I gonna say? What, what uh, can you just remind me of what you said about um, before you went onto the AGI? Uh, I think it was Spark Yeah, it was oh, non-linear. Yeah, non stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean NLP is obviously a non-linear solver as well Mm. um so fundamentally it's it's not working uh too differently from from computer vision or i guess non-linear regression um but i don't think this is necessarily a bad thing i don't think like uh uh, in our brains we have linear solvers to to problems i think there's there's definitely a lot of things going on and there probably is like non-linear interactions actually going on within Mm. Um, you know, within the chemicals that are released in our brains or within the way that, that neurons are, are fired and transmitted to, to other neurons. Um, so I don't think, like, the nonlinearity aspect of it is, is actually a bad thing. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's natural. Um, you know, I can't, I can't say that with, with certainty because um, neuroscience isn't my field. Um, but, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a bad thing for things to... Or I don't think it's inherently bad for things to be to, to be nonlinear. Um, but I fully get your point in in what you're saying. It's like, yeah, when when you see like um, some language model, it it feels a lot more impressive to see that than it does to see something which is like, oh hey, this is a picture of a dog or this is a picture of a cat, for example. Um, I don't know why, but language just seems like an inherently more complicated problem than than computer vision.
0: Yeah. So is uh, is so the research group you're you're in is called Llama, right? Mm-hmm. um what does that stand for
1: language and multimodal ai
0: i see so is agi something that is a focus on the group as well or is mo- no i
1: think i think like uh, i think this comes back to like the the lack of interdisciplinary um research that 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 goes on in research and i think this is why like research and in industries are actually especially for ai um or more so for ai than other fields i think it's it's um very uh, i think it's it's actually good um yeah, with, 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 I think with with research groups, a lot of it is dependent on kind of the expertise and the vision of the, the person who's leading the research group. And um, my supervisor, she's a fantastic person, Lucia Specia. Um, I don't think she has any ambition or vision for, for AGI. Um, I think, you know, she's been researching for long enough. And I think, you know, one thing that, you know, one thing that I can speak from, from personal experience is when applying to a PhD, you have to write a proposal. Mm-hmm. um i ended up writing a proposal and you know i think it was the standard thing of like what a lot of phd students do is like hey look i'm going to solve everything this is my idea for agi this is my yeah. idea for like uh how to solve world hunger how to cure cancer and and build flying cars and and whatever else um but i think you quickly realize when you come into your phd how how little you actually know it's probably a little bit of like the Dunning Kruger effect or something. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you realize like, okay, yes, I know I said there's a lack of interdisciplinary research going on, but you realize that, hey, look, actually innovation in the field is 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 difficult. It's like it's easy to it's easy to read works that other people have done, but to come up with with new and novel work yourself is is somewhat difficult. And there's a ton of like practical problems which don't exist in theory. Um, and I think a lot of people's times get a lot of people's time gets consumed by one, catching up and truly understanding the, the work which has come prior to them uh, to understand, like, uh, you know, obviously you need to understand previous work to, to innovate on, on. not in all cases, but in most cases, to innovate on that. Um, and then like the actual practicality of what AI actually is, it's not, hey, look, I have this idea, um, here's, here it is in maths, there we go, with solid AGI. That, that's not how it works at all. It's, uh, hey, look, I have this idea let's build a whole framework to experiment things, um, to, to run experiments. Um, it takes, uh, conceptually, even though it might take uh, a week to build out, uh, a week to build, but the reality is, is some of these systems take like months months to actually build out. Um, and then all you've done in reality is just solve one, one small problem, which is interesting in research. Um, you kind of need to go through that process. You kind of need to build on the previous knowledge because if it's gonna be a component in what you believe, AGI will actually, um, actually contain, then obviously you need to go through and build this component itself. So like one AGI is not a, is not a small feat or a small task in itself. Um, I think a lot of people have this vision and this ambition to solve it, but when you actually sit down and try to do it, like, um, yeah, one, you realize how much you don't know. And two, um, uh, yeah, you need to build out all these other little components before you can, you can actually, you know, build this general solve a system which which works for everything um and the answer is well i guess one of the answers not there's probably multiple right answers one of the answers so far is just throw more data at the problem mm-hmm. um so we've seen this with like open ai and, and gpt for example and even like uh i don't know why microsoft decided to call this this, uh called its model this but megatron turing <laughs> which is now like the, the largest language model i don't know why they decided to call it the largest language model megatron but uh, i guess we're just <laughs> waiting for like um yeah. optimus prime or something like that is it so, does it
0: is it based on a transformer like as in, it is based tra- on ma- in machine learning yeah, yeah, right yeah. yeah
1: yeah yeah um so obviously there's a there's a bit of a shout out to megatron yeah <laughs> but it's like just very interesting that they decided to choose megatron instead of um uh, Bumblebee or Transformers uh, yeah.
0: Prime? <laughs> Maybe they were they were um sort of playing off the word Mega, right? <laughs> and uh, hoping yeah, that yeah. become <laughs> one of the Mega sort of models <laughs> that people would use.
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. Like, um, I think it's a cool name. Don't get me wrong, but I'm sure uh there there's a lot of questionable things about people being like, hey, this is this is called Megatron. Uh, you know, obviously the connotations behind that go go wider than yeah. The, uh, the the Mega.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh I used to I used to really love Transformers also. I watched the movies over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. uh like I used to like transforming the toys back and forth. Um but yeah it was it was quite it was quite interesting thinking about um conscious the consciousness of Transformers. Like is it AI or is it like just an alien? Right? You know? This is like a biological. Uh alien. are we talking
1: about the model here or <laughs> no, as in like <laughs> actual <laughs> transformers? <laughs> <laughs> uh I I don't think you could read too deeply into that. Uh, they came from a planet of of recycled metal or something like that. So, like, how did this even exist if you really want to try and try and plot uh, like pick plot holes in there? Yeah. Um and I think I think the point are, the point is is that they're meant to be anthropomorphic anthropomorphized a little bit sorry i can't, yeah, anthrop- I, can't I think it's right.
0: anthropomorphized.
1: Yeah. anthropomorphized back in gcse yeah. english <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um yeah so like uh, obviously you're meant to relate to like the, the the humanity and the you know the struggles of good versus evil that, that these guys actually have but mm-hmm. um, yeah at the end of the day it's a kid's a kid's comic book series so um, i don't think the the uh, you know i don't think those those films like marvel <laughs> where, where they yeah. really got you to think about these moral and ethical dilemma uh, dilemmas and issues i think this was very much a michael bay film where yeah. it's like he's good he's bad nobody cares about anything else but explosions mm-hmm. so that's it's it's, let's... It's,
0: a, it's just an excuse to have cool cgi right
1: yeah 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 literally and um i guess yeah people people enjoy that so um mm. yeah. yeah
0: so the next question is like about actual, well, Transformers that you use. <laughs> <in Android. laughs> good bridge, good bridge, yeah. <laughs> So I've, I've, watched, um, I've watched the first tutorial on, on Transformers and mm-hmm. uh, it took a while for me to wrap my head around it. So um, could you maybe um, give like a, a short introduction and just an explanation of what it is? How, um, and uh, do, do you use it in, in Feather as well? Because you have it on the Feather YouTube channel.
1: Yeah. Um, so again, like Feather is not a, Feather is not an AI product. Feather is um, a platform which allows people to upload AI models to it. Mm -hmm. Um, the same way that eBay isn't a product or an item. It's just a a place where people can go to sell products and items. Yeah. Um, Transformers themselves, um, they're, they're pretty cool. They underpin and, um, or they were originally designed for NLP, um, and you know, since their introduction, they they basically broke all state of the arts for 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 NLP, um, replacing RNNs and LSTMs as like the dominant language uh, language modeling architecture. Um, and it's quite interesting because they work very differently to to RNNs, which um, I actually think are, are more natural in the way that they work. Um, but uh, empirically, they they uh, with with the current state of AI, they perform worse than transformers. Transformers now, though, um, they're they they're using all all ML fields, um, so even state of the arts are being broken in computer vision now, because which are backed by a transformer architecture. Um, RL has has had integrations with transformer networks as well, and, and they've seen good success with um, with using transformer models too. How it fundamentally works is this mechanism called attention. Um, Now I won't dive into the mathematical details here because I'm sure some people aren't overly interested in, in, in the understanding, you know, what attention actually is, but, um, just as a quick high level overview, um, how previous models for language worked. So RNNs, um, is, is they had this notion of time within them, which is like, Hey, every time I speak a word, you can consider each word, a a discrete time step. And after, you know, N or five time steps, for example, you have an idea in your head about the, the everything that I'm, that I'm, that I've actually said up to that point in time. Mm -hmm. So at every time step, you're building up some, some representation in your head about like what the meaning of what I'm actually saying, what, what that actually means transformers are a bit different um how transformers work is they analyze the the sentence as a whole so they don't do it per every per every time step instead you give the whole sentence to the transformer and then it looks for every word which is in this sentence it looks at every other word including the word itself to build up a representation for for that word so whereas RNNs they mostly not always but they mostly perform on like the sentence level, um, so like if I give you a sentence, it will say, "Hey, for 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 this meaning of a sentence, translate it into a different sentence." Uh, how transformers actually work is they build up a representation for every word, and they say, "Hey, here's a sentence which is composed of words. Now, based on these words and the representations of these words, instead of the representation of the sentence, so based on the representations of these words, go and translate this to me in a in a different language." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there's. Uh, I mean, this is this is a very very crude overview. Um, so people who have read more into the into the NLP field, NLP field, will obviously understand. You know the um, the the slight facets, I guess, of, of, of what I said. Um, but yeah, for for a general overview on on how transformers actually work, it's it's very much um, trying to build up a representation of each word based on the sequence that you're or based on the sentence that you're giving it
0: so, so what are the problems right now with transformers like what well, are you i mean because your, your phd is working on it as well right so mm-hmm. um what, what what do you think needs to be solved for it to then be adopted more
1: um actually uh i think the adoption is very it's very widespread um yeah. and this is in research i think academia works a little different from industry and there's a couple of reasons for this one is the explainability aspect um, a lot of people in or a lot of companies in industry they they value the explainability of models and with any neural network based models it's not easy to to do this um, now i do think this is a bit of like i don't think this is the entire problem because i think in plenty of cases you don't actually need explainability um, and I think the trade-off that you get for model performance is, is, is better than the like, you know, that trade-off between explainability and performance is, has yeah. reached the point where it's like, hey, look, this is, this is very good. We know in like pretty much most situations it, uh, you know, it works fine. Um, and therefore we can, we can implement this. Um, the other thing I think, or the other two things is I think a lack of understanding of how the models are actually working, which is different from explaining the outputs of the model. Um, and to expertise in actually building these models. Um, and I think the, you know, the supply on that is very short. And this is actually a problem which Feather tries to solve, which is reducing the, the, the gap that you have between research and adoption in industry. Um, because yeah, there's, there's a ton of cool models out there, but um, it's, you need an expert to actually work on it, to actually deploy it, to debug, um, to debug how it works. So integrating it into a system and deploying it isn't, isn't exactly easy. But if there was um if there was a company which I don't know wanted to have um uh, wanted to record phone call conversations that they were that um, that they were receiving for for customer service purposes and then run analysis over that then feather could be a good use case because um you know you you have all of this ready to go it's here's a model um uh yeah plug it into your platform or here's an API endpoint for it, plug it into your platform, uh, you will automatically get the transcription of text. You don't actually need to have like some uh, PhD or machine learning engineer mm-hmm. or researcher come in to, to actually um, build out this system and deploy it for you. Um, to answer your, or, or to bring this back to, to your original question a little bit, which was like, what are the downfalls and the shortcomings of, of the model of transformers in themselves? Um Honestly, I think what we're, what we're seeing with AI is like uh, different architectures, they come with um, different trade-offs. Now, uh, actually, the, 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 the apart from like the lack of naturalness, which RNNs had, um, which Transformers don't have, uh, there isn't, in, in most other situations, Transformers basically, or in most other contexts and angles that you're looking at it from, Transformers basically don't have drawbacks when, when comparing them over previous um, previous neural language models. Um, I think like the, the barriers in AI actually come from, from data and the size of of models. Um, so like, uh, we're seeing that for models to be powerful, they need to, um, they, they need to be big, like extremely big. Um, and they also need to have a lot of data. And I think these are like the, the, the challenge, the next interesting challenges in AI, which is like, one, can we move from this paradigm of supervised learning to unsupervised or self-supervised learning? So like just using the information itself to 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 learn more about it instead of saying like um hey look this is a dog breed of a labrador this is a dog breed of a beagle this is a dog breed of an alsatian or something like that like uh finding more yeah moving away from that labeled data to to more unsupervised methods of, of solving problems and two making these models smaller so they can actually be used on device and on hardware instead of um you know being in in a cloud location Um, because there's a lot of advantages to uh, speed is is the biggest one Um, to, to, yeah, actually one, making models smaller in terms of training, then it's a lot, it's cheaper monetarily and and faster to train these models. And two, the actual inference and deployment aspect of it. Like if you have it on device, the, the inference is going to be like um, a lot faster than to, than than, uh, yeah, to, to send things up to the cloud, have this big model run in the background and return the information to you.
0: Yeah, exactly. What I found with, um, having done some projects and internship in machine learning, my my problem was with the data. Right? I didn't have enough data with some with some with some problems, and it meant that I was kind of stuck with whatever model I threw at it, whatever feature extraction or transforming method I tried. The data was still the bottleneck. Right? Yeah, um, I mean, you have. What would you try
1: if you? Yeah, so, so um, a couple of years ago, there's, there was this algorithm called BERT, which was introduced, which is based on transformers. Um, so this is what's known as a pre-trained language model. Yeah. Um, and what this means is, like, it's been trained on a huge amount of data, probably more data than you can, like, uh, you know, like terabytes of data, you know, like, more than you can probably fit onto, to like, a standard hard drive or something. Um, and uh, how you actually use this model is you download a model that, somebody else i.e google um, hugging face microsoft for example have have built and trained and then you have your small amount of real world data now the model itself it it kind of fundamentally understands the syntax of of language because it's been trained on so much language data all you're doing is you're fine-tuning this model you're saying hey look we know you understand language here's here's the task that we have um which is i don't know like classification or question answering for example um we, we don't have anywhere near as much data as, as um, what would normally be required to train this model from scratch. Maybe you only have a 1,000 or 2,000 pieces oh. of data. Um, and then you feed this data and you fine tune this pre-trained language model on, on, on this data that you have. Um, so this is a field called like transfer learning. Um, yeah, exactly. And this is a very exciting field as well because um, it allows you to use big models and um, uh, exploit like the advantages that these big models have had while um, still being able to customize it specifically to, to your own needs. Hmm. With
0: uh, with problems with not having enough data, the, the common first thing that people do, well, try to do is data augmentation, but that, but that only really works with um, computer vision, right? Because numerical data can't really be augmented and I'm, I'm guessing NLP data is also quite hard.
1: Yeah, numerical data is probably a bit of a trickier one. Uh, NLP, you can actually augment. So a common augmentation strategy is this thing known as back translation, which means that you have a sentence, you'll translate it into French or German, for example, and then you'll translate it back into English. Yeah. Um, And you can use a a translation model to do this. Um, But the the semantics of the sentence stay the same, but the syntax actually changes. So like words will be in different orders or or different Mm -hmm. orders or substitutions might have happened based on words. Uh, based on, on on some certain words. Um, so this is a this is a cool strategy to, to actually create more text data. Um, another thing that you can do is um, actually make things robust um, by adding noise into the sentence as well. Um, so you could intentionally, uh, you know, um, permute some words uh, by inducing typos into yeah. uh, into the sentence itself, um, inducing some grammatical errors. Um, and the reason why this is cool is because like you know your analyze or in most situations not in all situations like obviously medicine would be a bit different but like um you know people commonly make typos even even when i type messages out on whatsapp i'm, I'm making typos which i don't even know i'm typing until mm-hmm. I, I reread it like an hour later I'm like oh look i made a mistake when i when yeah. i typed that out you know like um errors are actually or noise is actually part of the data generating distribution for human language <clears throat> um and i think like you know, we've, we've seen this shift in AI from a couple of years ago where it's all about, hey, let's get the cleanest data. Let's pre-process it in the best way possible to like, actually, the pre-processing of it doesn't matter too much. Let's just take it for how it is because like chance, obviously, a little bit of pre-processing is important. But chances are, is like, you know, this comes from a, a, a natural data generating distribution. This is how humans actually speak. So we want to capture those semantics about how humans they're actually communicating with each other as opposed to how language in its ideal and perfect form is is, is meant to be
0: I see so um, that's that's why uh, I'm like asking you about this like how to like what other methods are there right like because I find the implementation of machine learning actually is the <laughs> it's like the easiest part like uh, thinking about the pipeline uh, whether or not to process how much to process the data uh what to feed into it whether to use transfer learning how much to use transfer learning by it's all the stuff that comes beforehand that's actually um requires all the research and study right so um is that what you spend most of your time on as well
1: no so so i think um actually probably the, the thing which does require research and study is the implementation or the details of the implementation oh, actually, yeah, um, of the model. Yeah. But this is, this is the interesting part, but it's not the lengthy part. And it's not the, 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 uh, you know, for, for industry, it's not the most interesting part. Like, mm-hmm. um, the reality of the job is like it's 80% like munging through data, setting up pipelines, as you're saying to, to actually process this data that take, like that's, that's one big component of like the, this whole ML pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've actually, I think it's different if you're if you're doing a PhD and coming up with the algorithms itself versus if you're like actually using a model that somebody else has built. Um, yeah. If you're using a model that somebody else has built, then what you said is true, then it's just a small part. You oh, just I download it from GitHub or yeah. um, use Hugging Face or something like that, plug it in. And then um, here we go, magic, uh, bish, bash, bash, you, you have a working model. Um, yeah, it, like uh, with, with research, you know, that actually building the model is a big part of, of what the the, the time that you're spending on it in industry, not so much. And, um, but in, in both cases, it's very much about um, processing the data, making sure that, uh, you know, when you have this data, it's in a clean format and that it's suitable to, to, to go into your model. Um, and yeah, this is this setting up this pipeline takes a lot of time in, in, in practice more so than actually building the model, um, building the model out. Um, but you know what? A lot of that actually comes through the, um, the, the, uh, the ease of machine learning libraries like PyTorch, TensorFlow, and Keras, for example, like they've really managed to create like an intuitive and high-level way of building and training models. Um, And if, if these libraries weren't there, then yeah, you would probably be spending more time on, on building models um, because you'd have to build things from scratch as opposed to just being able to use like nn.linear. Um, you know, that that's how easy it is to build a model these days. Whereas like um, back when I started, you know, uh, there was no concept of a of, of TensorFlow giving you a dense layer or a linear layer. You would actually have to build a function yourself, which would uh, you know do the matrix multiplication, then do the activation, and then add the bias on on, on top of it. Um, so yeah, throughout the years, we're just seeing like more abstraction come into play, and this is a this is a good thing for people who want to adopt ML, um, especially in industry. But uh, yeah, this is this is why like the actual implementation of ML is is becoming smaller and smaller because it's easier all these libraries are actually making it easier to to do that see
0: that i think that makes it much clearer because you picked up on um on why i found the implementation to be the part that takes the least amount of time it's because all the libraries and i guess because i've only started in ml much more recently i I haven't really seen much of what happened before i mean i built a a neural network and a couple models from scratch before but haven't really used it, haven't really done that going forward. Right. But mm. you actually build a transformer from scratch. Is that, is that right?
1: Or... Uh, yeah, but this is more for learning purposes, right? Like, yeah, um, I'm a big believer in like, you need to under, or, or I don't, I don't think you need to, but I think it's, it's, especially when you're in research, it's, it's incredibly good practice to have a fundamental understanding of the, um, the tool that you're using when you're actually using it in systems. Like nowadays when I'm training models, I use, I use BERT, um, which is based on transformers. Um, so I need to have, uh, for, for research, I need to have an understanding on how the transformer itself actually works. Because if my if my BERT model doesn't work, then I need to say like, oh, hey, look, what are the potential reasons that this isn't working? And having the understanding of a transformer and being able to work through and debug the different components within the transformer is um, is obviously incredibly uh, vital in debugging the model that I'm, I'm using in its entirety. Um, and I'm sure you found something similar as well when, you know, like once you build this neural network, you felt a lot more comfortable using nn.linear now that you understand yeah. like what, what this linear layer is actually doing. Um, mm-hmm. but going through that process of of building out a neural network each time, building it at scale. Um, and then when you do it at scale, you need to start thinking about efficiency because um, your numpy implementation probably isn't anywhere near as efficient as the the code which uh, executes on CUDA or on GPUs. Um, and, and this is all stuff that the, you know, the, the, the libraries actually give us, which, which we don't need to concern ourselves with too much, unless obviously it's your area of research.
0: Yeah, so uh, OpenAI was the one that made BERT, right? Is that right?
1: No, Google made BERT.
0: Oh, Google made BERT, okay. Uh, wh- what do you think, um, how, 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 what are the differences do you think between like, the goals of OpenAI and DeepMind? I thought you'd have some cool ideas from that, or oh, cool thoughts.
1: Uh, yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, obviously, I know both companies and I, um, I reworked I re- by both companies. Um, but I think despite them having a lot of similarities, they um, philosophically, they're different, I think. And I think DeepMind is still uh, DeepMind. Okay, here's how I'd summarize it. Open AI build things which are everyday and human centric things, which like people actually like the regular user would actually want to use um so uh, they have codex for example which um is is um a language model for code generation so if you're typing some code on VS Code, it can you know autocomplete code for you basically um and then you have gpt3 which is um, or gpt in general i guess which is like um uh yeah a large language model that anybody can use to, to just generate language um DeepMind on the other hand, I think they're more concerned with, um, they're still like fundamental, well, I guess both the research firms, but they're like research in its purest sense. Like here are the big challenges that humanity is actually facing, which have been huge problems, which typically have gone unsolved. Yeah. Um, and this could be like, uh, uh, yeah. Games is one of them. Like they had Alpha, uh, go Alpha Zero, mm-hmm. um, Craft, I think it was the, the algo that sold StarCraft, um, then protein folding, so another, yeah. it's not something that I, can, I I think about on a daily basis. You know, I probably never thought about it until it, it got made into the limelight by by DeepMind. Um, and this is, uh, you know, this was a, a challenge which humanity as a whole was facing, but not individual people. It was like, um, you know, it, it does affect everyone, but everybody won't be the users of this system. Only highly technical and specialized people will be the users of this system but it would obviously have an effect on, on people as well. Um, but it's similar with like the, the more recent algos that they've created, such as, um, one which now like can do, uh, high precision forecasting of weather, um, which has typically been considered like, um, a chaotic problem. So uh, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, now DeepMind have built an algo for that, but I don't see like open AI building algos for these things because Mm -hmm. they're not usable by the everyday consumer.
0: I see. So, um, OpenAI
1: does stuff like GPT, GPT-3, but what else does it do? Um, yeah, they have a handful of products, but I think, yeah, their flagship ones are GPT um, and Codex, um, but they also have a couple of other, like, uh, models as well. So, uh, they have a cool one called DALI, which is um, image generation or yeah. text to image generation. So, you can put in some text and it will actually um, generate some Im- some high-quality images based on this text. Um, uh, but this isn't open to the public. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, I, I guess it's a meme at this point, open AI isn't really open. Um, but, uh, you know, like that, that I think is the, the, the biggest trend is like, uh, open AI run themselves as a business. Um, and they have a, they have a target market and they have problems that they're solving. Whereas DeepMind is, is a research firm and, yeah. um, they basically have unlimited resources to, to, around with things which they think is cool thanks to thanks to google
0: yeah it's really quite amazing what DeepMind does um Mm -hmm. i i've read quite a lot of papers um from DeepMind and they they do they they do stuff on like uh involving involving something called hamiltonian uh, hamiltonians in graph in graph neural networks it's like using inductive physics for it they do Mm -hmm. stuff they do as you said alpha
1: fold and then um, simulation of complex systems. And- yeah, but I think this is the thing, like, you look at a DeepMind paper and you see how many authors there are on <laughs> there, right? And yeah. this is because, like, they're truly doing cross-disciplinary work. Like, if you go on the, their careers website, they're hiring biologists, they're hiring neuroscientists, they're hiring, you know, weather experts, um, go experts for, for, you know, AlphaGo in their, their um I can't remember, I don't, I can't remember what the name of their weather prediction um, system is, maybe AlphaMet or something like that. I I don't, I don't quite know. Um, But, you know, like they, they truly do cross-disciplinary work. And this is why you see innovation happening and and making sense is because like um, we're applying ML into fields that we as ML researchers, we don't know a lot about, um, but we have that expertise and we have, uh, you know, domain expertise basically, which, which is, um, whether it's in weather or go or whether it's actually more talking about like different architectures. So like the fusion of NLP and RL, for example, like um, it only makes sense when you have, when you want to do it at scale, it makes sense. only makes sense when you have people of who who are experts in their respective fields working together. And I think this is something that um, a, a, a PhD journey doesn't entirely focus on. I think a PhD journey is very um very niche and very specific to the problem which i don't think is, is necessarily a bad thing because obviously that's how you become an expert in the field um but yeah there, there's you don't see this kind of collaboration happening to the same way that you see it in in big uh, research institutes like d yeah and
0: uh it's <clears throat> like some of the stuff has really changed the way how many things are done i when i was reading the uh, the paper on AlphaGo, there were there were lots of uh terms that was um I mean, what, what people in physical sciences would call like biology jargon, right? So I brought it to my friend who does bio- biochemistry and he was explaining lots of things. And he said that that day right after he he, he looked at the paper with me, his lecture was on AlphaGo. Right? <laughs> and all, all, the, all the researchers now use AlphaGo in biochemistry. Mm. So stuff like that. Although one of my favorite papers by DeepMind was on uh, using NLP, for stand up comedy so oh, really? one yeah. yeah one of the characters was an nlp model and uh it was fed as the inputs were uh all the everything that the other uh like stand up comedians or actors would come up with and then the, the nlp model would come up with something in return and it was the funniest thing because um, it came up with very, sta- very strange descriptions of people, like um, this hard-handed, like um, a rough patisserie baker. Right? That's <laughs> one of the characters uh, that, that, that goes from angry to sad to angry, all in one sentence, right? So um, having, having the actors react to it um, really, got them, got, really got them out of their comfort zone and to be much more innovative to stand up. And those they had this thing called the status switch, which uh got the actors to uh start off as one of the people that's uh further that's not exactly in the limelight, which then would um like have a status switch and become like the most important person in the um in the in the part in the play, right? Which doesn't usually happen because actors are usually um. Well the paper said that actors are usually pretty uh um, self-absorbed, you know. Mm-hmm. So they, they really like to be the person who's like the most important, right? So they mm-hmm. like their attention. Uh, the attention. But the NLP model really got them to do lots of things differently and push push boundaries basically. So yeah, it's yeah, it's I mean crazy. um
1: I think like when you're when you so so humor is quite interesting because um it's a uh, it adds a twist onto what is typically expected, and this is why jokes are funny, right? Because it's something which is unexpected um, that that, uh, that that actually makes it funny. Uh, it, it breaks your standard pattern of thinking, um, and I think like when you when you teach AI things like this, it becomes very interesting to to see what it can do, and um, you know this is why I imagine like it was one of the reasons why it got like a, a lesser actor to, to, to be part of the limelight, because obviously that's something unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, but like uh, in the wider context of things, it's it's incredibly interesting to see what AI can do when it's forced to do things, which um, I guess are non-linear like that, not not in the mathematical sense, but like, um, you know, they, they break the standard trajectory of things. Yeah. So one, one example that I remember is, um, uh, yeah uh ai agents who have been or, or like um rl agents that have been trained on on tasks and then those those situations have been modified and the ai situa- the ai has to actually find a solution to that um so there's this this uh one of the examples is like uh hey um this ai is a spider right and um we've cut off all eight of its legs uh can uh, how is it going to walk um, so the, the task was get from point A to point B, right? But you don't have any legs. So how are you going to do it? Um, and how it did it was it, it flipped itself on its back because it was like, uh, only the bottom of the limbs that were broken off and it used yeah. like <laughs> his limb on the back to, to carry itself backwards to, to, to point B. Um, and we, we see this things happening and, and this really like out of the box thinking happening from AI, which, um, you know, us as humans, we, we can't really easily foresee, um, but it can kind of, you know forewarn you about some of the dangers of, of putting these models into the wild, um, especially in, in terms of like RL and, and AGI in particular. So one uh, one which really sticks out to me and kind of scares me a little bit was, um, was this game. And this game was designed so you fail it on level two. Um, so there's two levels to this game, level one and level two. And on level two, you can't win. It, it, you, you always die, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the AI was told like, okay, like maximize your score in this game. So what it did was it learned that to win, it, it crashed the game with a bug in the game at level one. So it would, it would play <laughs> level one, it would find this bug and it would crash the game. And this would be the way that it got the highest score because obviously if it played to level two, then um, it, would, it would reach zero or yeah. the score would be zero or negative for example, right? Um, so this kind of thinking of like, hey, look, now this AI is going to crash the environment that it's in to preserve its, its high score is, is really like a bit daunting and a bit challenging, but also like a bit ingenious when you actually think about things as well, like breaking like the standard trajectory of things and, and how AI can, can, can actually do that. And I think it's, it's incredibly interesting research.
0: Mm. Because it's essentially trial and error over and over again. So basically, it could, I mean, it, the whole point is to try to explore the, um, the problem space or the, uh, the feature space, like, exhaustively, right? <laughs> just trying to find the best map.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, this is, like, um, the... Sorry, I didn't mean again, but I, I just meant to say, like, this is, this is a paradigm shift that we're seeing currently as well, where it's, like, um, trying to either use transfer learning or trying to stop that reliance on... Uh, searching every single space, every single possible path or everything, every single possible space, because us as humans, we, we don't do that. Right. We don't, we don't play Mario and be like, Oh, what happens if I move one pixel to the left? What happens if I move one pixel to the right? We understand like, Oh, look, there's this box here and I should just hit this box. And that gives me some kind of, it gives me a coin or gives me a mushroom or something like that. We don't need to explore what happens if, um, if we, we hit this box, if we're hitting this box, one pixel to the left or one pixel to the right. Whereas with AI, I think, uh, you know, it does need to do that. It does really need to, to go through, uh, as you said, something incredibly exhaustive, um, which is a bit of a restriction if we're trying to make these models learn more naturally the way that humans, the way that humans actually learn.
0: Yeah, yeah so um, I guess the, the big areas in machine learning and AI are like reinforcement learning, um and then d- deep learning is just like well it kind of covers m- most things right mm. and you just have like uh regression stuff you have uh, computer vision you got nlp what other areas do you uh, do you know of
1: um yeah so i'd say deep learning is a tool to solve this yeah. problem because like nlp Um, Yes, deep learning is the best tool to solve NLP, but obviously you could use like Naive Bayes or some kind of um, traditional Ngram model instead of like, um, you know, BERT or Transformers or something. Um, What I'm most excited about is like, or not most excited, but what I find interesting is like um, video processing. Um, So videos are inherently multimodal. Um, You know, they're a collection of images and a collection of signals, which are, which have been put together. Um, But they are the most natural way of describing our world. Um, I don't actually think, I think writing and text is natural, but I don't think it's as natural as as actually speaking to other people. Um, And videos kind of encapsulate this true immersion in the real world. It's not one static image or it's not, it's not a text without any inflections on the end of it. It's like, um, you know, People actually acting the way that they act in the in the real world, um, and I think models which can and obviously they're incredibly computationally heavy, but models which can kind of understand, solve, and process videos, I think that's what's um, that's what's going to be uh, a future, or that's what a lot more research is going to go into um, over the next over the upcoming years. Um, and obviously, like interdisciplinary work by including RL in that and what we spoke about earlier about reducing like the amount of video data you might need, for example, or uh, training these models in an unsupervised way. So you don't need to reduce the amount of video data, but the model can still learn without having this, this reliance on paired data. Um, I think these kinds of things are going to be um, uh, very, um, uh, how can I say, like beneficial to uh beneficial to, to humanity as a whole, um, and also um, interesting from, from a research perspective as well. That's
0: great. There's so many things that uh, it, more people can work on in AI, and um, there's lots of potential, lots of innovation going on. Um, so bringing it back to uh, tutorials on transformers that you've made, I thought it was actually quite brilliant that you put them up on YouTube, uh, but I was wondering what your reasoning behind it was
1: um uh, a couple of reasons one was traction obviously mm-hmm. like um by the time i start when i was uploading them we were still focused on like this marketplace as a whole instead of this um vertical um and uh, i think feathers value props are actually a lot greater for for suppliers than they are for for uh demanders or consumers especially in this marketing vertical and that is like hey, we give you guys a super easy way to deploy your models, like 15 lines of code to basically deploy any model. No need for AWS, no need to no front end, um, no need to understand Docker or anything like that. Um, and also on top of that, like um, you get a URL that you can share with your friends. Um, so other people can, you know, stakeholders can stay in contact with the, like the work and the progress that you're making. Um, you can put this in research papers, whatever. Um, and also you have a way of, of like a, a revenue or a monetary uh like uh, it can be like a secondary source of income and i think these are really good value props to to model creators and and suppliers themselves um so this was like a traction strategy to to try and and get some of these um get some more of these suppliers um but also on the other angle it was like a, a genuine um a genuine tutorial of, of uh, here's what a transformer is because by no means is it easy and i don't think any any real series on youtube does it justice to be honest um either uh, one, it, it's quite lacking, two, if it's there, it's either going to be like um, uh, a paper read through. So like, here's the transformer paper. Let me explain it to you in like uh, with intuition or what the math is doing um, or, or two, maybe like a pure code breakdown of, of how it's working. But I don't think there's ever been this, this kind of series of like going from paper to code. Um, and I think this is, this is the biggest learning curve for me coming on my PhD, like understanding, like, hey, I read a paper. How do I actually implement it? Yeah. And that's part of what I was trying to teach people through through this tutorial as well. Like, hey, here's how the paper pre- phrases this problem. Here's the mindset that you should actually have when you um, write it in code. So a lot of it was like, um, yeah, this, this video series about where you... Um, where you go through the theory and the code at the same time, as opposed to have them being two distinct, uh, two distinct steps. So with every component of the transformer we introduce, we will then we then write it up in code, so you can kind of build the transformer as you're working through the theory of it.
0: Great, that's exactly what um, I had to sort of find on my own when I was working my research internship, and reading the papers on uh, machine learning and then trying to implement it with. Uh, on my battery data like learning the different methods I need to use and then making it all fit together right so I think um also it just shows that like they're quite dedicated to transformers and machine learning in general and that you're really quite passionate about it so it's it also shows uh shows a bit about your personality through that as well <laughs> I think I, I think um it was a good idea to do that i uh, just have one last question um so what is the next steps or stage for your research and for your um and for feather and um yeah what what what, what kind of help are you looking for um and uh, yeah where, where should people contact you if uh
1: they think they can help you with something like that um cool nice nice question um yeah with my research i think it's just a it's just a hustle a matter of working through it and and um you know, I think context switching is is a is a thing. It's it's you you know you you're immersing yourself like thirty five percent or forty percent in the field for each of the things that you're doing. So like if you have two things, then it's like forty yeah. percent PhD, forty percent feather. Um, whereas I think like if you were if you didn't have context switching, there would be like one hundred and ten percent of the one thing or one hundred and twenty percent of the of the mm-hmm. other thing. Like there's a non-linear trade-off between like context switching and versus working on, on one thing. Um, with with the actual PhD, um, yeah, just working on on a paper using something known as uh, variational inference and variational autoencoders um, with with discrete latent variables. Um, so that's my that's my current project. Um, the with, with Feather, um, yeah, as, as as I spoke earlier on, the 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 next step is uh, actually launching this this marketing vertical. Um, we have a designer now, so things are, are starting to, to look good um things which are behind the scenes that haven't been uh, they're not released to the public yet um getting traction for this as well um after after that's the case we're probably going to be looking to um looking to raise in order to um build out a better um probably build out another mvp for the suppliers um we we, we do have like a library ready to go for for suppliers and model creators to already use um but it needs a lot of work and we went through um uh, a lot of wrong assumptions, which now that we've actually tested the tested product, had other people use the product, um, built models ourselves using the product or deployed models using, using the product realize that, Hey, look, there's, there's ways that we can do this better and um, we need to do them better before we, we let them before we let it out into the, into the wild, you know? So, um, yeah, there, there'll probably be some kind of fundraising round going on when we start, um, thinking about, uh, bringing on suppliers to, to, uh, to, uh, to serve these um these consumers that we'll have on the platform by that point
0: and uh where should people uh, reach out to you or um look for any of your works linkedin or, um, or
1: you my, yeah i can give my my name at google uh I, I got pretty lucky and have a pretty rare name so i'm pretty sure that if you search for nina <laughs> bed um i will i will come up on linkedin or twitter or something like that feel free to reach out to me on either one of those channels um you can drop me an email. Um, I'll give you my personal email, which is nihirved at gmail.com, uh, N-I-H-I-R-V-E-D-D at gmail.com. Um, so feel free to reach out. Um, I don't bite unless you want me to. Um, but yeah, be happy yeah. To, to collaborate or talk or, or um, even learn more and, and help you if, if, if um, that's something that's required as well.
0: Yeah, so it's feather-ai.com. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, Nihir um i really appreciate your time uh yes hopefully i'll have you on in the future again thank you very much
1: yeah cool thanks for hosting me zen it's been it's been an absolute pleasure